on uh, January 1st, 1993, in New Orleans, the Super Bowl was played. And it was the first time that uh, the national championship was also uh, determined by that game. It was, uh, it was the first time the forerunner to what we do now, uh, but uh, whatever you call that. But uh, Miami and Alabama were playing uh, in the Super Bowl for the national championship. Both were undefeated. Miami was, uh, was number one in the nation in the polls. Alabama was number two in the polls. Miami was an eight-point favorite. And during the week leading up uh, towards the, uh, the Sugar, Sugar Bowl, the, uh, the Miami squad was kind of known for speaking trash. And uh, they trash-talked uh, the Southeastern Conference and uh, uh, their opponents and, uh, and also one of their players in particular, a wide receiver, was talking about how superior the receiving core of Miami was to that of Alabama. And in fact, he questioned the manhood of the defensive backfield of the University of Alabama. Alabama won the game 34 to 13. The next day, and we were in Alabama at the time, the next day, almost everywhere you looked, I don't know, magically, these sweatshirts appeared. They were crimson and white. Emblazoned on them were the words, Miami talked the talk. Alabama walked the walk. I say that because I'm about to come to the end of our looking together at uh, what's known as the Sermon on the Plain uh, in Luke chapter 6, most of the second half, a little more than the second half of the sixth chapter of Luke. We've been looking at it for, for this is the fourth sermon in this mini-series within our study of the Gospel of Luke. And it sort of begs the question, when it comes to following Jesus, are you walking the walk? Or are you just talking the talk? Which brings us into our passage this morning where it's printed in your bulletin or take your Bible if you will and follow along it's verses 46 to 49 of Luke verse 6 Jesus is speaking why do you call me Lord Lord and do not do what I tell you everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I will show you what he is like it's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, 
because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit of God, come. Open us to the words of Jesus. Lord, remind us of truths perhaps we've overlooked or forgot. Remind us of who Jesus is, of his authority, of his grace, of his goodness. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's much more than a NCAA football championship trophy at stake. The point of this whole sermon will be abundantly clear, I suspect, but they say it up at the front. If you're not following, pardon me, you're not following Jesus if you're not doing what he tells you. Uh, there are four things inherently wrong with calling Jesus Lord, Lord, without obeying him. In the first place, it's logically inconsistent. Jesus said, if you're not doing what I say, why are you calling me Lord, Lord? And Lord here doesn't simply mean master. It's really a statement, a recognition of the deity of Jesus Christ. Which is, is to say that Jesus' words are God's words. The only proper response to this word which Jesus brings with him from eternity, wrote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is simply to do it. Then why don't you and I do it? Because we're logically inconsistent. Second, It's hypocritical to call Jesus Lord, Lord without obeying him. You're not not the person you seem to be. You're not really who you say you are. The Greek word underlying that word hypocrite that Jesus uses here is is the word for actor. And somewhere in school, sometime or other, you talked about Greek drama. And you may remember some of the illustrations. The Greek actors were on the stage pretending to be someone they weren't, but you didn't see their faces. They had masks, and you've seen pictures and copies of those masks the happy one, the sad one, and everywhere in between. And so, if it was a happy scene, they had their happy face on, and if it was tragedy, came the sad face. 
Jesus said, you're hiding behind a mask. You're acting out a robe, hiding behind a mask. And the problem is, while you and I don't see behind the mask, Jesus does. I can't see behind your mask, but Jesus does. You can't see behind mine, but Jesus does. In the third place, it's it's self-deceptive. You're not who you think you are. They thought they were followers of Jesus because they called him Lord. They said he was their Lord, and therefore, he was. There's another time, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus spoke about those people who would come to him, saying, Lord, Lord. And he would respond, depart from me. I never knew you. There are no more tragic words. And to me, there are no more frightening words than those in all of Scripture. They terrify me. And that leads to the fourth. It's self-destructive. The end result won't be what you think it will. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Storms are brewing. More than one is brewing right now. And these are just squalls. If the house is coming apart now, how will it stand in the end? Which is another way of saying life's traumatic. Death is more so. But the ultimate trauma is neither life nor death. It's judgment. That's the perfect storm. And no matter the superstructure, these lives that we have built, if it's not on the right foundation, If it's on the wrong foundation, it will fall. And great will be its fall. That's the first thing to say about Jesus' words. The second is this. Jesus here isn't talking to those out there. He's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to his church, at least in its visible outward state. He was talking to his followers, and he's still talking to his followers. Remember remember how we got here. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He has a certain number of his followers, of his disciples. 
And he spends the night in prayer and then he chooses 12 of those to be his apostles. And he comes down the mountain. Jesus the 12 and however many there were that, from whom he chose the 12. And he gets down on the ground and there are even more disciples waiting there, followers of Jesus. And then there's the outer group, the world. The Jews and the Gentiles, they're from Tower and Sidon, they're from Judah and Judea and Jerusalem, from all over, who were there, they had needs to be met and they heard that Jesus could beat them. They perhaps were curious, they had heard about this man, perhaps they came because of his celebrity. Perhaps they came because they heard what some of the things he said, they didn't like them, whatever. But there they were, all around. They're the ones to whom Jesus is not speaking. It's rather that group of disciples. Verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. And that idea is repeated in verse 39. He also told them and their fathers what he had to say. See, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't comparing Christians in the first sense to non-Christians. That is, he, he wasn't comparing those who would, in our, in our day, identify as Christians and those who would not identify as Christians. He was talking about professing Christians and professing Christians. People who, who say they're Christians over against other people who also say they're Christians. He's talking about Christians with nominal Christians, Jesus followers with, with Jesus professors. He's, he's talking about Christians and ostensible Jesus followers who identify as disciples. All of them members of the church visible. He's not talking at all about those who haven't come to, haven't heard Jesus, who have denied Jesus, who have turned their back on Jesus. He's not talking to them in the first place. They hear, but they're not being addressed. There's little difference between the two men he describes. They're both builders. They both apparently came to Jesus. They certainly both heard Jesus. Each was building his own house. And Jesus uses the figure of a physical, material house. But he's talking about their spiritual house. Their eternal hope. Their lives. Everything they're building while they draw breath. And the difference between them is where they built. Let me tell you something about this building in which you're seated. Some of you know it, some of you may not. It wasn't supposed to be here. It was supposed to be back over there where the parking lot is, back near the back fence. And when we t- 
told the neighbors about it all. There were some who raised questions about it. It was kind of close to their homes, and they weren't sure they wanted a big building there. So, want to be good neighbors. Flip flop the plans. We should be parked here, <laughs> you know, and, and in the building over there. Flip flopped it and moved the building forward on, on the property. Pleased everybody. Great. That took a while to redo all that. And then so we get on to program. And I can't remember if it's when they did the core drillings or if it was once they started clearing the property and to level it and all that. But it wasn't very long before we discovered that what we had done was move this building from back there, which was perfectly good, and set it here on top of a trash dump. And we started hauling things out. And of course, EPA got involved. They wanted to know if there's anything under here that, that shouldn't be under here, if it was contaminated or not. And they took the core drillings and more core drillings, and they, and they determined, well, no, it's not. It's, it's all, you know, there's nothing in there that's contaminated. And so we started digging out, and we dug out tree stumps and tree limbs and, and tree trunks and one, even a washing machine or a dryer, and uh, some tires and some other things. But, uh, and then we had a pretty good-sized hole in the ground. Now, we couldn't dig down the rock because we're in South Louisiana. There is no rock uh, to dig down to, but we dug down to pretty hard ground. And all the engineers and everybody signed off on it, yeah, we can build on that. But we had this hole, so we began trucking in field dirt. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, we just trucked it in and trucked it in, and it seemed like it was never going to end. And finally, we filled it up, and you compact it and put more in, and on and on it went. I don't know how long I delayed the building of this, but it, it delayed it a pretty good bit. It took time, it took effort, it took money. But anyway. Kenneth Bailey, back, back to Palestine now, Jesus in Galilee. Kenneth Bailey wrote a book uh, about, uh, it was talking about, about Palestine and things in Palestine, and he talked about dirt in, in, in Palestine. So you, you walk along it, you look at it, and it looks like hard, man. It, it looks hard, and, and it, it looks good, and it looks like you just build right on top of it, and some people do. He said, the problem is that when the rains come, when the winter rains come, that dirt looks so good and so solid. It turns to the consistency of chocolate pudding. And nothing will stand on it. And then he cited, I think it was in the 90s, 1990s, or early 2000, he cited a house built in Jerusalem in just that way. And how the rains came. And that house, within the last quarter century, just collapsed. <laughs> it fell. Which brings me to the next thing I want to say about this passage, and that is the foundation makes all the difference. On Christ the solid rock I stand, we sing, all other ground is sinking sand. And the guy that wrote that got it straight out of the Bible. Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, 
a testing stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Both Paul and Peter quote that in the New Testament. Peter said, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ the rock. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Wonderful words. But, but how do you know your faith is in Jesus? By the gospel fruit of obedience. We talked about trees and fruit last week. I won't repeat that, but by the gospel fruit of obedience. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? asked Jesus. What you say is either confirmed or contradicted by what you do. Bonhoeffer again. Only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. So here's the question. Do you do what Jesus has said you're to do? Which begs the other question that we've been asking these several weeks. What if? What if we took Jesus seriously? You and I, who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, who meet together week by week to worship Him, and praise Him, who speak to others about Him, who are banking on Him, if you let me use that language, for that final traumatic day of judgment. What if we really took Him seriously? Last thing then to say, it's not too late. We started prepping this ground. We discovered the dump. What do we do? We took a new start. <laughs> we dug it out. We dug deeper and dug deeper and dug deeper and got down to solid ground and then started filling it in. So you can take a new start. You've come to him. You've heard him. Now start doing what he said to you. It won't be easy. In fact, let's be honest, it's impossible. 
It's impossible. You'll never, ever do it perfectly or completely. Don't misunderstand that. And you won't gain heaven by doing it. It's only in Jesus. Only by his blood. Only by his love demonstrated on the cross. It's only by his grace and his goodness. Salvation, someone said, is free, but it ain't cheap. It costs the blood of Jesus on the cross. And don't you think that it's going to be cheap for you? It'll cost you. On offer for the last time, I promise. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that might mean literally. But it certainly means this. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. So that you and I might live to him. And live with him throughout all eternity. It'll take time. Look back at what Jesus said. He talks about the first builder. He said he's like a man building a house. Grammar lesson. It's a present participle. means he's going through this process of building a house. The other man whose house was built, this man is building a house, building a house, building a house. Isn't that what following Jesus is? <laughs> it's this process, this ongoing day in, day out, daily getting up to myself that I might live for him. There are those things I want to do. But Jesus calls me to this. Or to this. Or to that. I give myself up. For him. I've built a few things in my years. I don't know that I've ever got right the first time. I'm uh, not sure I ever got it right the second time. Uh, so I do it a third time. We come back and we come back and we come back. All that to say, building your spiritual house, your eternal hope, requires a lifetime of taking Jesus seriously. Will you walk the walk or just talk 